You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. Hi, welcome to the Code Red podcast. I am Alan Roth, president of Secure America Now. I would like to begin my interview with Jeremy Adams by urging everyone to buy and read his vitally important book, Hollowed Out. Jeremy is an award-winning teacher and author, and in Hallowed Out, he clearly explains how America has produced a society of young people who are divorced from American society, radically individualistic, without a moral foundation. Jeremy Adams is deeply concerned about this problem, and after clearly stating our society, society's challenges, he ends on an optimistic note. Jeremy, thank you for writing this book and for joining us to discuss the challenges posed by America's youth. Let's begin with you explaining the title of the book, Hollowed Out, and why you wrote it. First of all, thank you so much for having me on. It is an honor to be on here. Um, you know, I wrote the book Hollowed Out because uh, I am my number one identity, besides being a father and husband, of course, is being a teacher. Uh, I am a classroom romantic. Uh, I believe that a meaningful individual life, uh, and I believe that uh, liberal democracy itself relies on a quality education. And in the past five to 10 years, uh, I, you know, I've been teaching for 23 years now. But in the past five or 10 years, uh, you know, I talk to my students a lot. I get to know them. And I've noticed a really, really disturbing pivot in the culture and in the country, in the way that they look at their lives, the way they spend their time, their values, the way they look at history, what they know and what they don't know. Um, and what's really, really profoundly hard for me is that I recognize that really the important books, almost all the important books in our country are written by giants, titans of the culture, uh, people who are politicians and pundits, people who have a million twi- you know, uh, Twitter followers or Instagram influencers. I'm just a high school teacher. Uh, I teach honors government at Bakersfield High School in Bakersfield, California, except what I would tell you is that it is not the politician or the pundit. Uh, it is not the person on you know, cable news who has a front row seat to America decli- America's decline the way that we do. And I'll tell you right now, many of us, many of us teachers out in the trenches of the American classroom, we want to wave our hands and yell out, look, there is something not right here. Um, Our young people are miserable. They are lonely. They spend nine or 10 hours a day on their devices. That was before the pandemic, by the way. And as a result of that, they're not dating. They're not going to the movies. They're not going to football games. They're not reading. And so hollowed out refers to the fact that they are hollowed out of the values, behaviors, and the models that tend to give life its meaning and its purpose. Uh, And at the end of the day, uh, if we can't empower and impassion our young people to acquire ambition, to have high hopes and mighty dreams, if they can't enter the arena of life as Teddy Roosevelt described it, then they are going to be hollowed out. We agree with you completely. And having read the book, I have to say that your classroom experiences, and you're relating them, 
and putting in context your analysis of what the problems are with our young people is a tremendous contribution to a debate that unfortunately has not taken place yet. There have been battles over, uh, and we've been involved in them, and CRT, um, going after critical race uh, teaching or individual battles in terms of education. But as you point out, it is not just education in the classroom. You believe that education at home and in society as a whole is also lacking. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Uh, you know, one of the things that you know, an artist would tell you is that they need really good paint brushes. They need a really fine canvas. Uh, you know, you would never have the David if you didn't have an extraordinary block of marble. Well, you know what? Teachers uh, don't get to choose the students who walk into their classrooms. Uh, and I would tell you that, you know, we, we've, we've undergone over a decade now of education reform in this country under, I think, an illusion. And it's what I call the, you know, the, the magical solution illusion, which is that if you just simply make teachers better teachers, if you tell them, well, you know, we need you to teach, but we also need you to be friends and parents and counselors and disciplinarians and motivational speakers, in addition to teaching, we just keep putting more and more and more on the teachers because we think that the only thing that matters is outputs, but that's an illusion. And it's, and it's very easy. It's much easier to just say, well, schools need to get better and teachers need to get better. The hard work, and you are so right about this, this is an embryonic debate. We are just now, this is, you know, my book, I guess to a certain degree is kind of the birth pangs, if you will, of this debate where we have to start talking about inputs. Um, what values are the kids absorbing before they get to the classroom? Where are the adult role models? They are not eating dinner with their families the way they did a generation ago. They are not reading books the way they did 30 or 40 years ago. They don't have the same ambitions. Uh, they Personally, many of them don't date. Half, half of all 18 to 34 year olds in this country don't have a romantic partner. One out of five millennials say that they don't have a good friend in the entire world. So the way that they conceive of their lives, the way that they frame what their hopes are is radically different. And I think that you know, good natured Americans who mean well, but who don't spend every day in the trenches with these young people would probably be shocked to understand that what they want for their life is very different than what people traditionally have wanted. And, you know, one of the beliefs that I've always had is that human beings are human beings, that, you know, the, the ancient Greeks used to talk about human flourishing and the good life. And I don't think that that changes particularly. I think what makes life meaningful, of course, is the ability to have the freedom to attach to things that we love more than we love ourselves. That's our, our children, that's our community, that's our country, that's our faith, that's uh, our, our spouse. And young people today are hollowed out because they misconstrue freedom to connect to meaningful things with the freedom to connect to nothing. And so those are the inputs we're dealing with nowadays as teachers. Um, the, you know, my job is easy by and large because I teach students who come into my classroom on the first day valuing what we do. Um, if, you know, 90% of the output of an educational uh, institution is the inputs. And if, if students come and they know how to behave, if they know how to study, 
if they feel that what we're doing in the classroom is meaningful and can lead them to live a better life, then my job is much easier. But we have to start having that conversation about what happens before they get into the classroom, where they're spending all this time alone, they're isolated, mom and dad are not around, and if they are, they're distracted by their own technologies, and the list can go on and on. One of the things that you, I'm gonna read a short passage from your book, and it relates to the loneliness issue. The howling out of our young people, their atomistic individualism and alienation from the traditional standards and aspirations is a significant contribution to loneliness. I think that that really encapsulates um, a, a major component of the loneliness uh, problem. In a sense, uh, it, it appears from your book, and I, I've seen other random statistics, polls, etc., that the American youth, and I think young adults uh, um, fall into this category, that they, in fact, are self-isolating themselves from society, and it gets very lonely being by yourself all the time. That's absolutely right. Um, it's interesting. You know, I, like, like I've said before, the genesis of this project was just simply listening and paying attention to my students and noticing that there were some, you know, really profound pivots taking place. Um, you know, it, when you write a book like this, uh, which, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm, you know, I'll be honest, it is, it is, I think everything I've ever done in my teaching career has kind of led me to this point. Um, it's interesting because, uh, you know, it, it is formed on the basis of, of anecdotes, but then you start to dig deeper and you realize that what's happening in your classroom is happening everywhere. But one of the things you talk about self-isolating, one of the things that I've noticed is so disturbing is, you know, you will, it used to be that students, if you have a minute or two at the end of class, they would talk, they would gossip, they would flirt. Uh, if you had a kid's birthday party, you know, I have three children. And a lot of this book, by the way, is not just about Mr. Adams, the teacher. It's also... Jeremy Adams, the father, who has made some big mistakes in the way that I've reared my kids uh, in this time period. What's interesting is when you watch all of these gatherings of young people, you know what? It's not rowdy. It, it's silent. They're all self-medicating on their phones. Uh, I've noticed that, you know, I, I teach at a big football school out here in California, Bakersfield High School, land of the drillers. And for most of my life, you, if you want to get into a football game and get a seat, you have to go really, really early. And I've noticed in the last five or 10 years, the, the stands are empty. Kids don't go to football games anymore. And then you ask why, and they sound like a bunch of 50-year-old men and women. They're like, well, I'm tired. Um, you know, they, they, and, and you say, well, don't you want to be with your friends? And they'll tell you, well, I am. I'm just in my room on my phone with my friends. They don't go to the movies. So you're right. All of that connective tissue that I think people like you and I probably take for granted. I mean, I think of many of the magical moments of my childhood where we were you know, rushing the field after a, a victory. We were going to the movies and laughing together where we were falling in love and holding somebody's hand for the first time. Can you imagine a childhood where that's, that those kinds of experiences are not happening? Like the kind of magic and the wonderment and the enchantment of being young, a lot of that is gone. And that is the foundation of this sense we can have joyful lives. So there are profound implications for the kind of childhood that they are having. Again, that's a hollowing out. One of the points that you make, and it's a very, very powerful point, is that the role of religion in 
the lives of young people is disappearing quite rapidly and it's left a, a huge hole. And what I mean by that is that in society and especially in terms of individuals, if they don't have something greater than themselves to think about or to, uh, or to worry about or debate, you make this point that there are no debates about religion, there's indifference, which is a far different challenge than we had in the past. You're not debating the atheist or someone from another religion. Young people just seem not to care. What is the impact of that? Well, I mean, the, the impact uh, is, I think, is, is absolutely intimately tied to the cause of, of this phenomenon. And again, you know, what's so interesting to me is it's, you know, and I'm, I think I'm very clear in the book about this, that I am, you know, I am a, a very proud public school teacher, and I really do believe that their faith is none of my business. Uh, their religious beliefs are none of my business. I, I shouldn't be encouraging, discouraging, or whatever. But what does fascinate me and what does bother me, and you, you say this very eloquently, is it's not that they hate religion. It's not, like they, it's not that they have thought about it and they've said, you know what? I just don't believe in, in, in the Ten Commandments. I just reject the divinity of Jesus Christ. I don't believe uh, in what Muhammad was proclaiming. I, you know, the, the, the noble truths of Buddha don't make any sense to me. Uh, reincarnation seems to be illogical. It's not that they're thinking about these issues and rejecting them. No, 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 no. They are completely ignorant about the teachings of the world's great religions. And, and that is what bothers me. Uh, you know, there are, there are so many stories I can tell you, but the one that, that kind of, you know, that moment of, hey, uh, there's something weird going on here, is that a few years ago, I was talking about, you know, uh, Christmas, Easter break or, or spring break, and uh, I said something about the resurrection. And some of them looked very, very confused by the term. And I, again, I teach bright students, okay? So um, I teach really, you know, interesting, fascinating, good people, and I and I and some of them looked, you know, mystified. I said, "How many of you guys even know what Easter is? Like, do you know what what, what it signifies?" And honestly, probably maybe if I'm being generous, a little bit over half uh, understood what it was. Uh, many of the young people thought, you know, Easter was about the weather getting warmer, bunnies and eggs. Uh, and, and so the fact that they don't know anything about it, uh, and they say, "Well, I just reject that stuff." Uh, the consequence of that is there is not even this idea that we find meaning and purpose through anything transcendent. I, I don't, you know, it, it, I am not a historian, but I think it'd be very easy to chronicle the meaning and what people who truly believe in their faith from their head to their toes, what that does for their lives. People who are genuine people of faith and conviction, who believe that they are not an accidental byproduct of the universe, who believe that right is right, not because they say so. And yet I would tell you the reason why they don't like religion, why they reject that stuff, as they would say, is because it intrudes upon their autonomy. Uh, you, know, they, they, you know, they are moral absolutists when it comes to politics, but they're moral relativists, even nihilists when it comes to individual morality. They believe in a kind of, I would say a radical subjectivism where you know, they believe that they get to define what is right and wrong, that there is no objective order of righteousness or, or, uh, or the opposite. And that really changes your worldview. That's the consequence.
You know, while I was reading the book, what came to mind, especially when you were talking about the individual deities that uh, that young people are creating, meaning themselves <laughs> as being yeah. um, God and um, is uh, Tom Wolfe's book in which he talks where he, uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, where his, his main protagonist is master of the universe. <laughs> and then, then reality hits him. Um, and, uh, and not only do you discuss the lack of religion and the, and the indifference to religion, but you also talk about an almost complete divorce from American heritage, American mores, parts of our society that carry on from generation to generation. And it came to the last few generations and it just seemed to have been severed or they have been severed from Western civilization as well as American society. Do you, how do you see that? Well, a few things to, to, to say there. Um, you know, first of all, I love Tom Wolfe. Uh, we both went to Washington Elite University in Virginia, so I got to throw that out there. I'm a huge Tom Wolfe fan. Uh, not necessarily his fashion choices, maybe, but uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, he's certainly one of the most lively and, and, and extraordinary writers of the latter half of the 20th century. Um, but um, when you're talking about the fact that there is, you know, if you if you go back and, you know, it's interesting, everybody always talks about Lincoln and his second inaugural. Uh, people talk about Lincoln's uh, Gettysburg Address, of course. But I would tell you that uh, speech earlier in his career, in the 1840s, his Lyceum Address uh, that he gave at a, at a school for young men is really a, an absolutely uh, underrated American classic of rhetoric. Because what Lincoln argues in there is something that we, we need to remember today, which is that freedom and democratic Republican government, our way of life, the idea of the consent of the government, natural law, a bill of rights, limited government, all of these values, they are not the natural order of things. Uh, authoritarianism is much more natural than democracy. Uh, if you go look at the Federalist Papers, uh, Hamilton and Madison constantly were overwhelmed with the anxiety of social decay because they understood that a democratic way of life required a democratic disposition, certain values uh, from its people. Primarily, that if you want to have a limited society that maximizes freedom, then you have to have a society where people can govern themselves, right? And that's why you can have limited government is because people can take care of themselves. And what worries me was the worry that Lincoln had in the Lyceum speech, which is that as we get further and further and further away from the genesis of this country or from the moments where this country was renewed, you know, getting away from what happened in 76, what happened in 1787, what happened in 1865, what happened in 1964. You know, the, 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 the beauty of this country is how we, we take crises and we use it to renew ourselves and make ourselves better. And I don't think it's any coincidence that we, who do we put on Mount Rushmore? Well, we put on Mount Rushmore the people who took the American creed and made us live up to it better but here's my worry. What happens when you produce an entire generation of young people who don't believe in the American creed? I mean, this is, this is, I would say, a 
a crisis like no other when it comes to, to civics education in this country. I mean, I, I know that, you know, what people who don't like the book, I know what they're going to say. Here's just another, you know, grumpy curmudgeon crank, which by the way, I'm way too young to be called a curmudgeon or, <laughs> you know, I'm only in my mid forties. And he's just, you know, every generation thinks the next one's going to hell in a handbasket. No, this is different because it's one thing to point out and say, hey, your generation, you older Americans, you're not living up to your own promises. And that's true, by the way, that, that is true. And, and that's how, that's why older Americans and younger Americans look at the country so differently. You see, older Americans do not deny all of the horrors that have come before, do not deny the gut-wrenching reality of human bondage in this country, and do not deny the hundred years of, of, of segregation, do not deny all of these things, but take pride in the fact that we lived up to our ideals by moving beyond it. That, like, I think what young people do is they will look at these awful episodes in American history. And I, I am not one to deny them, by the way. I think we should teach them. I have no problem teaching our, the unsavory episodes in American history. But I think sometimes young people are taught, you see those awful moments in American history, that's America. And I would say, you know what? America is not all the things that happened in the South before the Civil War. America is the 14th Amendment. America is not all the segregation. America is the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And so the older Americans say we have a really good propensity in this country of, of getting closer you know, to that more perfect union. And we take pride in that. Whereas I think younger Americans will look at, and there's, if you want to have a lot of episodes that where we don't live up to our ideals, they are there. And young people will look at those and say, you know what, that's the real American. And that's the real danger of something like a 1619 project, in my view, which teaches that the American idea is false. It's a lie. It's a front for endless and sprawling oppression. And if you tell a whole generation of young people that America is a lie, that the idea is not true, that the proposition that Lincoln talks about is, is unattainable, then I don't know what unites us. I don't know what yokes us together. What is the one in, in what is the we in we the people? What is the unum in e pluribus unum? And that to me is the real danger. You quote, um... G.K. Chesterton, who, and your quote, I'm going to read it now. Every high civilization decays by forgetting obvious things. And in the course of the book, um, you talk about how previous generations knew about the beginnings of Western civilization, Greek, Roman, um, the impacts that Great Britain had on America culturally. But all that seems to have um, no currency today. And I'm curious, I, in my introduction, I said that you actually end on an optimistic note. You think that we can address the problems um, that you brilliantly lay out in the book and actually um, turn things around. Do you still believe that we can turn this around? And if so, what do we have to do? Well, uh, a few things to say there about what we should have to do. First of all, I, I, I really echo what you said there and you said it quite brilliantly that, that you know, we used to just have this understanding in this country that if you want to renew a civilization, 
you have to remember where the animating and original ideas came from. That's why, you know, it, it's interesting that uh, every generation until someone recently understood, look, the people who created this country, they knew their Greek history like in the back of their hands. They, they, they knew about the Roman Empire. They understood the British traditions. You know, our ideals came from somewhere. There is an origin. You know, they weren't handed down uh, religiously. Um, our ideals are, are not from a holy book. They are from civilization, um, you know, our, our liberalism, our de democratic ideas, our classical Republican ideas. These are our heritage. Um, and again, that's not to say that other civilizations aren't extraordinary. They are. But our heritage came from somewhere. And, and, and it's not just enough to know what we believe as Americans, but we have to teach why we believe them. I mean, and that's one of the reasons, like you see how illiberal a lot of young people are with free speech today. Things that I just always took for granted that, of course, we're going to allow unpopular ideas to be spoken. That is not the case. A lot of young people believe that, you know what, that you should deplatform people, that unpopular ideas do create harm and, and, and you shouldn't give them uh, an airing. Whereas I always thought that it was just kind of assumed that the best thing you can do with a bad idea is expose it with good ideas, you know, and explain why it's wrong in the spirit of John Stuart Mill. So you are absolutely right on about that. Now, as far as what can we do about it? A number of things. Uh, and, and some of these things touch on issues that we didn't even, we didn't get to. But the number one thing I would say is the adults in our society have to start being adults again. Stop infantilizing everything. Stop giving moral authority to children. Acknowledge that kids are kids and we need to get back into their spaces. Take away the phones for all of that time. Don't let them be in these digital fortresses where adult eyes, adult values, uh, adult expectations are never there. It's, it's, you know, there's a quote in the book where there's a dean from uh, a high school uh, in Arkansas where he, he confiscates phones and he says, if the parents knew about the vulgarity and the violence and the sexuality and the filth that your children are seeing when they're 13, 14, 15 years old, it's shocking. So the first thing is the adults have to start adulting again. The second thing, as I said a minute ago, is that you can be patriotic without believing that your country is perfect. That patriotism is not the equivalent of declaring perfection. We are not a perfect nation. We have never been, we will never be, but we have made extraordinary strides in a way that I think nobody else ever has. And I think we need to teach that. The third thing is we need to expose our children to traditional aspirations. Not everybody wants to get married, that's fine. Not everybody wants to have a family, that's fine. Not everybody wants to be patriotic in the same way, that's fine. But we should defend, or at least explain the, the beauty, the, I'm gonna get a little emotional here because my daughter's going away to college, but the, the love that I have for my children, um, the word love is, is nowhere close to big enough. And to have taken the journey in this life without having experienced that kind of love that I have for my, my kids. I'm very thankful that my parents and other people were there to describe that love for me um, because it made me want to have a family someday. You know, you talked about Tolstoy, who is my favorite writer of all time, uh, who talks about the transcendent power of loving a child. Um, but when children aren't being taught that, when they're not reading, uh, they're not gonna know those traditional aspirations. Uh, and the last thing I would say is, we have got to tell young people that getting a license is more important than getting the keys to the car. Young people want freedom, but freedom is only good if we know how to use it well. Um, meaningful lives require that we use our freedom to decide who we love, where we live, what we believe in, what job we're gonna have. That's why freedom is important. But young people confuse the freedom to connect to important things with the freedom to connect to nothing. 
And we have to teach them that that is a one-way path to misery. You know, Jeremy, um, in addition to your book, which um, once again, I highly recommend reading it, it, there's an appendix to the book and it's a reprint of the 1776 report, the President's Advisory Commission um, from January 2021, which gives an overview of what it is to be an American and what the founding of our country means, should mean to us as well as to the world. So I, once again, I want to encourage people uh, to read the book and, um, and also to glance through the 1776 report that's inside the book. I, um, uh, I said it at the beginning, I'll say it again. This book, not only does it clearly state what the problem is or problems are, but it also uh, gets us thinking, uh, it got me thinking. I didn't think, um, you know, usually books have some sort of um, solution, one size fits all, but your book um, got me thinking on, yes, we have a big problem, but you know what? Uh, if we have the right attitude um, and your points, which you just made inside the book um, about adults actually acting like adults. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, it, it's so obvious, but yet it isn't said. And a lot of things in your book have, haven't been said. And I will tell you that at the beginning of each chapter, you have a very pertinent quote from Leo Tolstoy. I'm going to tell people, read it. We have, it's here America now, we have across our social media platforms over 4 million people. Oh my goodness. And it's, wow. <laughs> it's a lot wow. of folks. And, yeah. um, and we will aggressively market this interview and along with the interview, the book. Thank you so much. And, I, I cannot um, thank you enough. Thank you. Thank you. And well, I, again, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not just being <laughs> nice here. I thank you because I know I know the labor that it takes to actually put together a book, but I have to say that the book is, is praised, and I'm reading off your jacket, by the editor of First Things, R.R. Reno, a really giant intellect, as well as Stephen Hayward, who is one of the primary biographers of Ronald Reagan, yep. Matthew Spaulding, who has done phenomenal work on religion as well as on the American founding. And, um, and these people, when I got a copy of the book, I, I took a look as to uh, who you had quotes from and I said, okay, this is worth spending some time <laughs> with and it was. So Jeremy, I thank you. I wish you all the best with the book and I really, Hope we're gonna we're gonna try to help you uh, light a fire 
on the theses and the themes that you uh, present to us both in the interview and in the book. Well, I thank you very much. Um, I, I do need the help. Uh, like I've said before, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a, a very humble uh, classroom teacher. And, uh, uh, but I think that it's, it's a conversation and it's a book that I think really does need to get out there. So any assistance is really appreciated. I enjoyed this conversation thoroughly. It actually put me in a good mood. <laughs> um, <laughs> good. So, so thank you so much uh, for your kindness uh, and thank you so much for your support. Oh, absolutely. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.